We are continuing our study of the book of Samuel, um, often shown in English Bibles uh, and in Christian texts as First and Second uh, Samuel. Um, and we are going to be in uh, chapter two, the first eleven verses of chapter two, just to remind you where we have been. Um, in chapter one, we met a family uh, headed by a man named Elkanah who has two wives, Hannah and Penia. Penia has children, Hannah does not. And so Hannah comes before the Lord and pours out her heart to him in fervent prayer. Prayer so fervent, worship so pure and clean that the priest, Eli, determines that she is drunk. And then we saw that the Lord was faithful to Hannah, gave her a son, Samuel. And Hannah fulfills her promise and brings him to the Lord's temple at Shiloh after he is weaned to give him to the Lord because he has been so good to her. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is going to be Hannah's, sometimes you see it referred to as prayer, sometimes you, see, sometimes you see it referred to as song, but these are the words that Hannah has as she is in the temple worshiping God. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. And there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are, star who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He sits them with noblemen and he gives them a throne of honor for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones. But the wicked perish in darkness for a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. But the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest, Eli. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, 
come to you today and we ask that you hear the cries of your people, that you answer the prayers of the faithful. God, you are our rock. So we pray that you would grant us the boldness of Hannah, that we may persist in prayer, confident in your steadfast love. We pray that you would give us the faith of Hannah, that we may persist in worship, sure of your promise. Father, as we open your word, as we study it this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. We have a worship problem. We have a worship problem. All too often, like Eli last week, we do not recognize true worship when we see it. Now, when I say we, I don't mean the people in this room. I don't mean this congregation. I mean the big we. The human we. The capital T, capital C, the church we. If you were to go from from congregation to congregation around this country and around this world, you would see a myriad of what we now term worship styles. You would see everything from Church of Christ's worshiping without instruments to congregations that only sing musical settings of psalms to congregations that look a lot like us to congregations that there's no discernible difference between their worship service on Sunday morning and a rock concert on Friday night complete with smoke machines and laser light shows. That's just this country. So let's travel overseas. Let's look at worship in Africa. Let's look at worship in a closed country like North Korea. Worship in the Caribbean, or Latin America. If any of you have ever had an opportunity to worship, especially in a different country, but even in just a different culture, you will know that worship is different. When I had the the, the honor and the joy of being in Haiti on mission, we worshipped with a Haitian congregation. This was after the earthquake Their church building had been destroyed, and we had offered to rebuild their church building, and they insisted that first we rebuild the school. Because after all, they could worship in the school. So the school was still under construction when we were there, and so we were worshiping in a tent in Haiti in August. Brothers and sisters, 
if you think eastern North Carolina is oppressive in August in the heat and the humidity, I give you Haiti in August in the heat and the humidity. I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to assume not terribly different from what you experience when you go to Jamaica in the middle of the summer. So we were there. Maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. The primary language in Haiti is not English. The primary language in Haiti is not actually French. The primary language in Haiti is Haitian Creole, which, let me tell you, as someone who had four years of French in high school, is enough like French for me to think that I know what's going on and different enough from French that I can get myself into trouble. And so we worshiped with them for two and a half hours. We sang, not in English. We prayed, not in English. We listened to the Bible read, not in English. We heard a sermon, not in English. Luckily, I will say that we had one of the, the, the men who was helping us over the course of the week as a translator sort of sit behind us and we got the bullet points, at least. He wasn't really translating, but sort of, this is what's going on now. And at the conclusion of it, we celebrated the supper with them. I don't know a word that was said. It was the most powerful worship experience I have ever had. There wasn't even any powered amplification. There were no smoke machines, no electric guitars, no pipe organs. For two and a half hours, I was reminded of what it will be to stand before the throne of God and see representatives of every tribe and every tongue sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. So I want you to understand when I say that we have a worship problem, I don't mean that we have a problem in our worship style. I don't mean that we need to be doing this when we're doing that. What I mean when I say that we have a worship problem, I think A, we don't know what worship is, B, we don't understand who worship is about, and C, we do not understand what worship does. Several years ago, someone wrote a book, and I, I, I looked for it this week, not, you know, exhaustively. But several years ago, someone wrote a book, the premise of the book was that the true religion of the South was SEC football. Obviously, they did not live in North Carolina, because the true religion of North Carolina is ACC basketball. But let's think about it. What is a Saturday in the fall in Baton Rouge or Oxford or Athens look like? 
you gather with people who look like you, who are dressed like you, you break bread together, then the, the gates open and you enter the gates with praise, with a song on your lips. You sit together, you're all focused on one thing. Someone stands up and leads you in chants and in the singing of songs that everyone knows all of the words to. Rah, rah, wake forest, rah. Old alma mater, sons are we, go deeks. We get involved. There's a, there's a liturgy, a work of the people. If you're a Wake Forest fan, you know what to do when, when the cheerleaders stand up and they hold up the, the Wake sign or the Forest sign because you know one side of the stadium is doing the other. Wake Forest. Wake Forest. If you go to FSU, you know what happens before kickoff. Chief Osceola rides out and he plants the spear on the 50-yard line. I'm sure that that school in Chapel Hill and the one in Raleigh have traditions too. Not worth mentioning. See, modern contemporary sports have become this way that we express in our culture the need to worship something greater than ourselves. And I do not fool yourselves, brothers and sisters. And you know me, right? I love I love my sports. Have you seen how good the Braves are doing? Have you seen who the number one baseball team is in the country, in college? But it's worship. We express emotion. We praise. We lament. There is perhaps... No greater concentration of prayer on Saturday morning than college football stadiums across the country. I have been present when I have heard people pray out loud, Oh Lord, if we just make this field goal, I'll go to church tomorrow. Some of you may have made that prayer. See, there are two kinds of ways that we can worship falsely, okay? There are two kinds of ways that they can be false worship. One is we can have kind of right worship of a false god. And then we can have false worship of the true god. Right? We, we can worship, we can do all of the right things and direct it to the wrong thing, or we can do all of the wrong things directed to the right person. Today, we're primarily going to be looking at this first one. So today, what we're going to do, we're going to look at what the definition of worship is. We're going to look that true worship centers on the true God and that true worship transforms. I think one of our problems is, is that we have forgotten what worship is. We have this idea that worship is merely maybe gathering with God's people, probably on Sunday morning, 
If you're really old school, it only counts if it's at 11 o'clock. Maybe, maybe you're in the school, where, school of thought where you go to a church one Sunday morning and you really like the music. And you're like, man, worship was great this morning. And what you really mean was the key changes hit in all the right places and so you felt something inside. There are a lot of churches these days who have a worship pastor. The only thing that the worship pastor is responsible for is music. As if prayer and the sermon and everything else we do on Sunday morning is not part of our worship. So what is worship? Most basically, we could say that worship is this. That worship is our glad response to the goodness of God. Worship is our glad response to the goodness of God. As we established a few moments ago, everybody worships something. There have been lots of articles that have been come out over the last several years about groups of atheists and humanists around the world who are beginning to gather on Sunday morning to fellowship with one another and to talk with one another and sing with each other. Read an article, one article. They were sort of asking, if you are an atheist, why are you gathering essentially for worship? So, well, we just want to celebrate how good life is. So they're worshiping life. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, as someone who is very thankful that I woke up this morning breathing, I think life is a good thing. A very quick aside. This morning, this week, we were awake. Little dude was sleeping in a little bit. We heard him begin to stir. We looked over and he was sitting up. And the first thing that he said was, uh oh. Not entirely sure what uh oh was. If it was uh oh, I am awake and I want to be asleep. But no one quite expresses existential angst the way a two year old can. So we have groups of people who gather to worship, to worship life. I don't know if you have followed the news on this, and I don't want to get into the weeds on it. But uh, this week, there was an event uh, in this country. People came from all over the world to attend. It was called SatanCon, in which the Satanic Temple got together for their annual conference. You talk to them, and you hear them, and they'll, what they'll tell you is, is that, well, we all know that Satan isn't a real person, but if, when you really get down into it, what they're doing is they're worshiping the self, which... Brothers and sisters, I can tell you that the biblical account of Satan is totally in line with the worship of self. Here's an idea. How about instead of worshiping life or worshiping ourselves, how much better is it to worship the author of life, to worship our creator? 
So this brings us to our second point, that true worship centers on the true God. Any of y'all remember the um, Andy Griffith, what it was, was football monologue? You know, it's this, this, this man, who, young man who has come in and gets caught up in a football game and he doesn't know what it is. When you go to a football game, let me rephrase this. When you go with someone like, say, me or Jeff, or Barry Leonard to a football game, the reason that you are there is to pay attention to the football game. You're not there to marvel at the architecture of the stadium or or, or wonder how magnificent that new electronic scoreboard is or, or even to go to the concession stand so that you can write your blog post reviewing all of the new concession items available at the stadium. You're there to pay attention to what's happening on the field. One of my frustrations when I was a student at Wake Forest was that the students would show up at Wake Forest more interested in being seen and seeing others than in paying attention to the football game. They were losing focus on why they were there. We do this with worship. We lose focus on why we're here. We make it about other stuff. We make it about the lights. Are the, are, the, are the shutters open or closed? Are the lights up or down? Do we have colored lights or not colored lights? Do we have screens or no screens? Do we have good screens or bad screens? Or, or maybe we make it about the sounds and the music. It's this style or that style spoke earlier, there are those around us who worship only a cappella with no instruments. There are those who sing only psalms. There are those who use the hymnal. There are those who would break out in hives if they sang any song written before 2020. Sometimes we focus on the people. Could you believe that she was in worship this morning? Don't you know what she's done? Did you see him? And I'm glad he took a shower. He still, otherwise he would have still smelled like the beer hall. Or we make it about our clothes. Did you see the pastor did not wear a tie this week? Oh my goodness, one of the deacons wore shorts. Did you see her new dress? It was so pretty. We lose focus. The focus is to be on God, not on us, not on our stuff. There's an old preacher joke that goes like this. Preacher standing at the back of the church on the, at the end of service, and as everybody's speaking to him on his way out, someone comes up to him and says, Preacher, I didn't like worship very much this morning. To which the preacher responds, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. Hannah knows that true worship focuses on the true God. She uses the Lord's name or or, or some reference to him 21 times in 11 verses. Go back 
and circle every, in every version of Lord, God, He, or Him in these 11 verses. She recognizes that the singular focus on God will enable her to sing of His deliverance, of her reversal of fortune from shame to honor, and for the hope of a Messiah. That's how the song of Hannah ends in verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against him. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Brothers and sisters, that is about Jesus. Heath Thomas and J.D. Greer written a commentary on 1 Samuel. And as they were talking about this, they wrote this. Only encounters with the living God in worship enable us to have a radical shift in perspective. Even if circumstances do not change, when we encounter the living God in worship, our perspective on our circumstances change. God, Hannah saw her God, and that changed everything. You know, we can go to church for all sorts of reasons. We can go to church to see people, to talk with people. We can go to church to get the latest gossip. We can go to church to make sure that we're noticed. We can make sure to go to church to feel better about ourselves. We can go to church to get a better perspective on life. We can go to church to hear the music. We can go to church because our mommy and daddy told us to go to church. We can go to church because our kids want us to go to church. God doesn't want us to come to church. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. Go back to Hebrews 10 that we read at the beginning of worship. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. This is about wanting to be together with God's people. Wanting to focus on God. Finally, true worship transforms. If we go back and we consider Hannah, we see several things. In chapter 1, we see that Hannah is at war with others, in particular her rival, Pinia, and her husband, Elkanah. We also see that Hannah is at war with herself. She's described as being a broken heart and having anguish and resentment. But also, as we talked about last week, in a sense, Hannah was at war with God. How often when we, when we experience trouble out there, it's also in here, and when it's in here, it gets directed at God. That's Hannah's story in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, 
in her song, what we see is a woman radically transformed. Her very first thing that she does, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Salvation that comes from God. Her first word is to praise God. She thanks God for overcoming her enemies. She sees her story in God's story. She knows God's character, holiness, and his justice. And she has so transformed that she sees the coming of God's salvation in the Messiah. When we read it, we, we see that Hannah's life moves from emptiness to, to fullness, from pain to praise. Her heart moves from mourning and anguish to praise and joy. As we read in Hebrews, as we've talked about this morning, worship is, is the coming together of God and His people, but it only happens because of Christ. Because He is our perfect High Priest. So even here, even in 1 Samuel, and we'll discover next week just how bad Eli and his sons were. The, the high priest wasn't doing his job. The high priest couldn't even recognize her worship in chapter 1. So, so she's coming to God in chapter 2, not because of the work of the high priest. She's coming to work in chapter 2 because of the work of God in her through Christ. How amazing. A thousand years before Christ is born, Christ is already at work in his people. The mother of the man who will anoint the ancestor of Jesus can come to God because of Jesus' work. The covenant of grace is sealed with the blood of Christ, but the covenant of grace is promised and inaugurated in creation and in the fall and in God's promise to Eve that her son would crush the head of the serpent. Worship isn't about our feelings, and I'm sure it stirs up feelings for God, but worship is more than that. It's about an encounter with a living God that transforms us, that changes us. You are not a Christian because you come to worship. You do not have relationship with God because you come to worship. But if you have been transformed by God, your desire will be to be in worship, to encounter him, to grow in him and to continue your transformation and your journey into sanctification and holiness. Hannah's story of transformation from joy to pain is possible because 
she experiences God. So, 3,000 years later, we see a woman so radically changed in her worship of God that we remember her name and her place in God's story. This is the end of our story of Hannah. And it ends with this profound act of worship. May our lives be lives that end in worship. This week, many of you may have seen the news. Dr. Tim Keller, who's a longtime founding pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, Dr. Keller passed away after a three year battle with pancreatic cancer. Among his last words were, there is nothing to lose, but only to gain. Let me see Jesus. Dr. Keller's life ended in a profound act of worship. Our hymn of invitation is hymn, going to be hymn number 290.